have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only uh, act within a narrow set of ideas, and this range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. The late 19th century America is known as the place that has come the closest to having a free market policy. And that always seemed weird to me because the federal debate at the time seemed focused on gold and silver standard questions and not about creating a fair field, no favors policy. Um, it turns out, though, that this reputation was not due to anything that the federal government did, but rather from grassroots efforts in the states and in the courts to change state policy. And it left a legacy in state constitutions that stand to this day. And to talk about this, I am joined by Matt Mitchell and Jonathan Riches, authors of a fascinating report called Outlawing Favoritism, the Economics, History, and Law of Anti-Aid Provisions in State Constitutions, uh, published by the Mercatus Center. Uh, Matt and Jonathan, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Thanks for, having for having us. Yeah. What was going on in states in the late 19th century? So uh, much of what was going on then was similar to what's going on today. Uh, state leaders thought that they had this brand new, uh, you know, shiny idea. They were going to prop up and encourage economic development in their communities by using public funds. Uh, the idea was not new. Uh, it was, you know, dates back uh, to the mercantilist uh, period, really preceding the American Revolution. It was in, in no small part, that was what uh, one of the things that frustrated the American colonists actually about the British, uh, you know, the privileges that they had given to the uh, East India Company, for example, of course, were high on the list. So the federal government had uh, really pretty much stayed away from federal aid to states. Uh, there had been a number of proposals, most famously uh, Alexander Hamilton's report on the manufacturers. Uh, and then following that, you had um, a number of proposals, the American system. Um, you have proposals from uh, John Quincy Adams and others. But oh, time and time again, they've been rejected. But then in the 1820s, what happened is the states got in on the, on the game. They started offering uh, significant aid, particularly to railroads, canal builders, uh, banks in an effort to try to essentially jumpstart their, their economies. Uh, think of it as basically the Foxconn, uh, Wisconsin's Foxconn experiment, but in the 1820s. Yeah, so it was populating the interior and saying, look, you guys need all this stuff to, to develop. And the governments just gave uh, those transportation companies a ton of money. Uh, what happened with that? Well, uh, fiscal disaster. So, uh, you know, what happened was there was very little oversight over how this money was spent. There was this idea that uh, the governments could actually eliminate taxes, maybe, uh, because they could just rely on funding themselves through the, the, the sale of stock uh, and uh, from the, these deals. And what ended up happening is the states really put themselves in a, in a, in a fiscal bind. And this was really exposed by the end of the 1830s when there was a big financial crisis, a big economic crisis, and that uh, then led to major debt crises. So um, st state debt by the 1830s had grown to eight times uh, federal and local debt. Um, 
1830, for example, uh, Arkansas, Florida, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Mississippi had no debt at all, but by a decade later, uh, their combined debt was more than 44 million. So as this uh, you know, fiscal crisis hit in the late 1830s, the states ran into big trouble. So by 1842, eight states and one territory actually defaulted on their debt. Four states, Arkansas, Florida, Michigan, and Mississippi repudiated some debt. Um, and it was out of They just said, yeah, we've got debt. We're not paying it. Good luck uh, collecting right. it from us. That's right. Exactly. And so now, of course, the, the states had a lot of trouble financing regular projects, you know, normal things that the state should be doing. They couldn't go to go to creditors and get money for that. Uh, and so it was out of those circumstances that the the states actually adopted a number of, of constitutional provisions that made themselves you know, better organized. By the way, first of all, they went to the federal government for aid and the federal government said drop dead. Uh, and so uh, they then had to adopt their own types of provisions that limited their, this uh, uh, bad behavior. I mean, tell me a little bit about how those provisions came out, because it's not just they passed laws like you know, citizens got involved in this, right? Yeah, that's right. And and there was a, a lot of different efforts. You know, in our paper, we talk about anti-aid provisions, which uh, Jonathan will, will be able to, to speak to these, you know, the, the law a little bit in, in greater detail of the character of these. But basically, they, they limited the ability of the government to uh, loan its credit or buy stock in or give gifts to corporations. But these were really uh, one provision in a constellation of a lot of provisions that were happening that, that the states adopted. They had limits on, on debt. They had limits on um, what are called basically requiring general incorporations. So you, the getting away from the practice of uh, individual corporations having to go to the state legislature to ask for permission to exist. Instead, just any company could could set up business. They had uh, provisions that limited uh, the ability of, of legislatures to uh, create monopolies. Uh, they had provisions that limited, um, uh, forbid, for example, state legislators from owning stock in in certain companies that might be tied in with the government. So there was a lot of effort at the time, essentially, to try to get back to the idea of government that is general and for the benefit of the general welfare and not the specific welfare of particular firms or companies. Yeah, the um, it wasn't just in one state, though. Like this, this was in nearly all of the states. I don't know how many were we talking about. So uh, let's see. I think the first state and the, Rhode Island, weren't all fifty yet. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. So I think the first state that spearheaded this was uh, Rhode Island in eighteen forty two, and uh, they lent adopted a constitutional amendment limiting debt accumulation. Um, but in terms of the anti-aid provisions, yeah, it was essentially a, a majority of states that ended up adopting these. Um, and at the, the first wave only applied to the state government. Uh, as, as it turns out, they, they left out local governments. And so they had to come back in the 1870s and do another wave there. But it was a majority of governments that adopted these. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just... Uh, uh, sorry, John, go ahead. Yeah, so even within the anti-aid provisions, they, um, you know, they were different as they were adopted. So as Matt said, some, you know, some did just apply to states and then they brought them to local governments. Some never did that. Some only had them apply just to the states. Some prohibited, um, you know, government ownership or issuance of stock and private corporations. 
Um, others, particularly ones that were enacted with the Western Railroad expansion experience, uh, became quite robust and just outright limited any donation, grant, or gift to any private organization, association, or individual, and were really robustly um, written and early on robustly enforced. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of these states have these things of you got in trouble because you um, bought stock, you uh, uh, you guaranteed loans, and you just gave them gifts. Uh, we don't want you to do that anymore. We're putting these things in your constitution, but every state's doing a little bit differently. Every state's uh, you know, using a little bit of a different uh, different language. Um, and it seems like they're kind of missing something though, because like, okay, we can't buy stock. We can't uh, lend our credit. We can't give gifts, but aren't these around a central theme? Like the state shouldn't be in the in the business of uh, handing out uh, uh, support for private enterprise, um, which is why it was kind of interesting to see that this went beyond just these constitutional language. There were judicial rulings on this, too, that were more expansive than that. Right. Right. And some of the early decisions were pretty faithful to um pretty faithful to the stronger language of the provisions. So Arizona, for example, has a very strong um, textual gift clause. And the Supreme Court in Arizona um, very early on was clear that, you know, these things were put in place to prevent the, what they called the depletion of the public treasury or inflation of public debt by engaging in non-public um, enterprises. Um, and so you, you had a lot of this very good um, language saying we're not going to deplete the treasury, we're not going to give special favored interests, um, pr uh, you know, special treatment. Um, and so, um, you know, the courts were faithful both for the purpose of these provisions and to the text and striking down uh, a lot of these uh, early subsidies, um, you know, at the early part of the 20th century for, for the Western states. And one one irony about this is uh, some of these provisions that the uh, the courts adopted were intended to sort of complement these provisions that the state legislatures ha had adopted, but ultimately they were used against them. So, for example, there's what's known as the public purpose doctrine, which says the state can only tax. Now, the public purpose doctrine is is applied applies to state tax. Uh, uh, instruments. And what it says is the state can only tax to fund projects that are in the public interest. So projects that benefit private interests are forbidden. Um, and this was uh, initially created by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and ultimately was uh, the, the U.S. Supreme Court weighted into this as well. But it, so it, it sounds like it complements these anti-aid provisions. It says, okay, the anti-aid provisions are about how, the, how adopted by the legislatures and are about how the, they are allowed to spend this is a judicially created doctrine that is uh, basically says the uh, the power to tax is supposed to be a general power. You can only use it for general purposes, not for for um, specific aid. But then, what's ironic is that public purpose doctrine ended up essentially being turned on its head, so that if the legislature claims that something is in the public purpose, and that's really all they need to do, they need to just uh, use that. In, those magic that magical phrase public purpose then it uh courts have said oh okay that that overrides the state uh, anti-aid aid concept uh, provisions and over time that sort of gives you a sense of how these things have been able to be ignored 
Do I have that yeah. right, Jonathan? You, you know, Jonathan's a lawyer, so he has this a lot, a lot better than I do. Yeah. No, you got you got that exactly right. So they started to, despite even strong textual provisions, what the court started to say was that if the expenditure serves a public purpose, however the legislature or the the local government entity defines it. Um, it satisfies the constitutional prohibition. So basically, just because we, the government, says it's for the public, um, for for a public purpose, it it therefore is, and that is the way a lot of these things were neutered over um, over the years. Yeah, although that seems kind of strange because in the rulings, didn't they talk specifically about you know how uh, how this is a really important limitation on government? Um, in fact, I, in the ruling here that uh, we did a report on on this this idea in, in Michigan and the and the comments from the uh, Justice Cooley on this ruling were just so interesting. It's one of those things that resonates with me as uh, um, in talking about this. Like it is not the business of the state to make discriminations in favor of one class against another or in favor of one employment against another. The state can have no favorites. Its business is to protect the industry of all and to give all the benefit of equal laws. I mean, that's a tough thing to misinterpret to say, hey, maybe it is not the appropriate state business to subsidize select businesses, um, uh, regardless of whether they put a public purpose uh, language on, on the statute. And part of what what started happening is during the, especially during the New Deal era, there was just this general... Um, movement in the courts to defer to government activity of basically all kinds. Um, And part of that was that if the government in its infinite wisdom decides to subsidize one, you know, favored interest, well, then the courts weren't going to really get involved in disrupting that arrangement. So, um, so part of the dilution of these provisions should be viewed in context of um, courts, essentially abdicating their role mm-hmm. to hold the popularly elected branches accountable within proper constitutional restraints. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is and, a thing that people struggle to, to this day on other issues. That's right. And, and ju- just, uh, you know, one answer to that is actually found in some of the language that the legislature, that legislators used in creating these uh, provisions. So, uh, if you go and you look at, for example, what Representative Morrison um, from the Indiana Constitutional Convention was saying about why they needed to constrain themselves, uh, he sounds like a, a modern day philosopher or public choice economist. So on, on the philosophical grounds, he says, you know, there's no justice in the principle that the property or the money of the people should be taken to make profits for corporations. And then on the political economy or the, or the um, public choice side, he says, you know, he's talking about how these internal improvements had, had happened. And he said, it's a system of oppression inflicted by the representatives of the people by means of a regular system of log rolling. It's well known that these schemes are not uh, got along in the, how these schemes are got along in the legislature. Corporations are always well represented there and the people have no knowledge of what is going on until they're uh, entrapped by them. So he's basically saying, you know, we've got rational ignorance, we've got active special interests uh, who can benefit from these concentrated benefits and the those who bear the costs are diffuse and are not very active. I mean, this is right out of Public Choice 101. So the legislatures themselves well, before were before anyone even said public choice. In yes, the- exactly. Yes. Exactly. So, you know, the legislatures themselves, if you look at their intent, they were trying to constrain themselves. Uh, 
but you know, as Jonathan's saying, you know, later the courts were so eager to defer to the legislatures they didn't want to listen to the you know the original intent and the original meaning of these uh, provisions. Um, isn't the ruling kind of strange though, because they're putting in a limitation on taxes that doesn't seem to have a lot of express language in it in uh, about that limitation in the state constitution. You mean the the one that you read, James? Yeah, yeah. For the the, the general public, like uh, the courts saying, "Hey, you know, these taxes they're they're fundamentally limited uh, to uh, to being used for public purposes." And I looked at state constitution and I didn't say, "Where where in the constitution does it say that?" And yet, uh, these were things that were regularly established court doctrine all around the country. Yeah, you know, and a lot of this stuff too. Um, it, the textual stuff is is where it's strongest, but there is there are just general common law, um, you know, axiomatic principles of government, and and one of those is that public resources should be put to public use, not to benefit favored uh, special interests. So you did get you you would get in our view good language along those lines that would sort of reinforce what people just sort of intuitively knew to be correct, um, but maybe, you know, had not been uh, pen to paper in, in some states. I mean, what, in your mind, what exactly const, uh, differentiates a public benefit from a private one? In my view, I think that what um, courts should do um, when they're looking at these and legis- you know, legislative bodies or every government entity certainly should go through this analysis, but they got to weigh you know, who's the primary beneficiary of this. And if the primary benefic- beneficiary is the public, I think it satisfies that test. But if the primary beneficiary is a private special interest um, rather than just an incidental beneficiary, I don't think it does. So if you think about, you know, the beneficiary being the public, if the a, a state wanted to buy uh, asphalt from a you know private company and then use that to make a road that the public is going to drive on, that would satisfy that requirement. Right, Jonathan. But yeah, you, you know, if they are simply going to give money to a uh, company in the hopes that the, that the company will then employ people who then become taxpayers that's a very different type of scenario. The primary beneficiary there is, uh, you know, is the company. Precisely. And, and what we see a lot of times with these uh, deals, and Matt knows this better than anybody, is the subsidy will be offered for the purpose of the entity locating within some geographic area. So we'll give you, private developer, $100 million if you locate in Phoenix, Arizona, rather than neighboring Scottsdale, Arizona. And the the rationale is that they would not locate there, but for the subsidy that Phoenix offered and Scottsdale doesn't. Um, Well, you know, if you step back and look at that, um, the public is really not the primary beneficiary of that arrangement if it's just this sort of but for causation test. It's the it's the private developer that was going to make that was going to engage in this activity anyway. Um, that is, that's the primary beneficiary. And then there's a second component of this, which um, I think we'll have a chance to talk about, which is what is the exchange that taxpayers or the public are receiving for any outlay of public resources. 
All right, so I kind of want to lay out like the Overton window on this issue, um, which is we found the country and giving special favors with government money seems to be within the Overton window at this point. Again, as you said, Alexander Hamilton talked about it. We had the American plan. There were a lot of people interested in using government policy to sponsor private in in uh, industry. And in states that really got enacted or that got enacted, got implemented and they failed miserably. Uh, they built the Erie Canal, but they wasted a lot of money on other things. And this caused a, a visceral public reaction, which said, no, you can't do that anymore. Um, uh, you, we're going to put in our constitutions prohibitions against the kind of things that got us in trouble. And even courts said, you know, just looking at this thing, we're going to uh, make this a, a principle of Republican government, uh, and that's small r Republican uh, governance because the uh, 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 that that this is this is out uh, outside uh, these things are outside of the window and you can't consider it. But there's always a perennial demand to add uh, to to do political favoritism. So even though favoritism was outlawed, this seemed to be the case. Uh, even though favoritism was outlawed, there was always interest in adding more favors, and sometimes they would get uh, get them. I know in Michigan we had a couple of uh, schemes that got added, uh, and then courts uh, courts rescinded them, and then the New Deal comes around, and all of a sudden um, this is no longer an option. But that's not possible unless there's a change in public sentiment, right, that allows for these kind of things. Yeah, I think that's right. And the way I would interpret it is essentially what keeps happening is over and over uh, people try to get around this uh, limitation on government. They either, and again, this limitation is both in the common law and sort of in the public's perception of what government ought to do. You know, it's it's found in uh, all, all the way back to John Adams and some of his statements about, you know, the role of government and the original constitution uh, of Massachusetts, that government is there to serve the public purpose. Uh, so what seems to happen over and over again is there are these limitations, cultural, institutional, uh, legislatively adopted, textual uh, in the common law, and then people try to get around them. And then they apply new limitations, and then they try to get around them, and then they apply new, new limitations. So you see that, you know, there was this first wave of anti-aid provisions in the 1830s and 40s. Um, they, in many states, in many cases, did not apply to local governments. So then there was another panic in the 1870s, and this time the local governments um, uh, defaulted on their debts. And I think something like 20% of all municipal debt was defaulted on in the 1870s. So then, um, then there was a new wave of anti-aid provisions that applied to this, to the localities. The states adopted these things were, uh, went well for, for a few more decades. Then in the 1930s, uh, you had, um, people willing to experiment again and try to get around it. Um, at that point, uh, there was a Governor White uh, from Mississippi. Hugh White uh, had the idea of balance agriculture with industry. So he was looking at, his, at, at the Mississippi economy that was very heavily, you know, agricultural, agriculturally weighted. And he wanted, uh, he saw the North with all its industrialization. He wanted to, to jumpstart industrialization in Mississippi. And again, it's like this brand new shiny object. It was as if he thought he had discovered something totally new, this very clever idea. It was nothing new even at the time. Uh, but they were going to use, you know, public funds to encourage economic development. Um, I, I should note, you know, when you pick winners and losers, 
then you are subject to the whims of who, whatever the, the, the picking entity thinks sh who should win. So uh, the, the Bowie balance agriculture with uh, uh, industry project was pretty explicitly racist. You know, the, the type of industry he wanted to encourage was the was uh, uh, white industry. And, and in fact, in the advertising, they they were quite clear that uh, trying to attract companies and say that, you know, we've got a lot of white workers down here. Don't worry, you don't have to hire uh, non-white workers. Um, and so it didn't work. You know, again, in the cases of Mississippi, uh, I think most most people know uh, Mississippi does not top uh, the list in terms of per capita GDP or growth. Uh, it continues to be the, um, the poorest, if not one of the poorest countries. Uh, uh, states in the union. Um, so I think now is a good time. Maybe we're on that cycle again, where we can reinvigorate these things and try to uh, once again, uh, rein them in. And I think that's where Jonathan and, and his colleagues at the Goldwater Institute have really performed a, um, a, an extraordinary service there. Yeah. So right where we are is the, the this judicial understanding never got overturned. It's still good law. It's just too much deferment to uh, to how to comply with it. Uh, these pieces of constitutional language are still part of our constitutions. So, John, what are you doing about this? I think there's there's really two avenues, um, and the first is in some ways probably the strongest, which is the enforcement litigation piece. You know, the, there is a form of an anti-aid provision in basically every state, forty nine states. Some are more robust than others. Um, you know, about 16, 17 states um, have good textual language and the provisions have not been totally diluted by the courts. Um, so uh, Arizona happens to be one of those states with a very strong textual provision, pro prohibits gifts, um, credit, prohibits ownership of stock, applies to both state and local governments. Um, language is very strong. Um, so about 12 years ago, uh, you know, we we've done a lot of research on state constitutional provisions. We have a public interest litigation uh, component within the Goldwater Institute. And this this was pre-recession. So 2007 and cities throughout the state, like cities throughout the country, were doing this game of, you know, subsidies to try and get private development to locate within the municipality. City of Phoenix is one of those states. And they basically entered into an arrangement with a private developer, mixed use development, commercial, retail, some residential, essentially a Taj Mahal of uh, these new big paying, developments. Paying people who build buildings to build buildings. Precisely. Yep. Just like paying McDonald's to make hamburgers to make hamburgers, you know, mm -hmm. same, so it would be the same rationale. And so City of Phoenix offered the private developer uh, $97 million in exchange for the exclusive use of 500 parking spaces to operate a municipal ride-sharing program. And unlike Matt, I was not good at mathematics, but I did do that calculation hmm. on the back of a napkin, and that turns out to be about a half a million dollars of taxpayer funds uh, so City of Phoenix can park um, some cars that are part of a municipal ride sharing program on a private development, uh, which looked to us to be a pretty egregious gift. Uh, so we represented taxpayers uh, and some businesses that were affected by this, because of course, if you weren't receiving these subsidies and you were a nearby business, you're now at a disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis the businesses who are. Uh, and the case makes its way up to the Arizona Supreme Court. Arizona Supreme Court says, yes, we agree. This violates uh, the gift clause or the anti-aid provision of Arizona's constitution. And uh, you can't spend public money unless it's for a public purpose. And importantly, 
um, the uh, the public has to receive fair consideration for any outlay of public resources. So if you spend 100 million bucks, you got to get roughly that back in return. And oh, by the way, indirect benefits, things like anticipated jobs, anticipated tax revenues, because those are not guaranteed, um, don't count for purposes of the consideration analysis. Joe, one thing I'd note on that, on getting something in return, is just go back to we should all kind of think have Bastiat, you know, in our in, in the back of our head is uh, Wait, who's Bastiat? Bastiat, Frederick Bastiat. So the idea of uh, uh, you know the the idea that the real value, the real test of value, should be on the benefit side, not the cost side, and government quite often gets that exactly backwards. So when a road is built. The benefit is that you can drive from point A to point B. Your taxpayers can drive. The cost is the number of people that were employed to build that road. But as Bastiat you know, was writing in the 1840s, and as um, government officials continue to, to make this mistake, it's very common to mislabel the cost as a benefit. So if you, if you build a road from A to B and you don't employ 50 people, but you employ 500 people, Quite often, government officials will act as if this is great. Like we've, we this is a an even better project because look, we're employing more people. But just think about it as if you were a private business, you know, and you were going to try to get something done. If you you want to economize on the cost side and maximize the benefit side for your customers, you want them the best value for your customers. You don't want to figure out some way to make it more expensive. Um, and and too often, you know, that consideration or the idea of the taxpayers getting something, they mislabel costs as benefits. They'll say, hey, look, and they'll even you know, build it into the requirement. They'll say, in order to get this subsidy, you have to employ a certain number of people. Well, that's exactly backwards. Uh, that, should, that belongs on the cost side, not, not the benefit side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, John, going back to it, you said there are two things. Was that just two different legal strategies to breathe some life into this, or are you doing something else on this issue? Well, so I think there is a role for state legislatures here as well, um, and for local governments. Um, you know, the the uh, these provisions can be rejuvenated by you know, legislation that sort of lays out the right test for these sorts of things. And uh, we've developed some model legislation along these lines that basically have looked at some of the stronger uh, anti-aid provisions and what some of the courts have done to uh, breathe life back into those. And it really breaks down along those two factors, so public purpose and fair exchange of value for the government expenditure. Um, But some courts, New Jersey and Texas are notable for this, also require continuing government control over the outlay of any public resources, which is equally um, important because you don't just want to cut a check and hope that the private entity does the right thing. You got to ensure if the government's going to spend money that the public purpose is actually accomplished. So um, we've developed uh, legislation along those lines that incorporates all of these elements and state legislatures can and should take this up. There should be strong enforcement provisions when the government violates uh, any statutory scheme that's enacted. And of course, city councils, um, uh, you know, our local governments could also take these up, but probably best done at the state level. What will help you win on this issue? This is one of those unique um, policy political issues because, uh, as Matt uh, has has said many times, it's an issue of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. So oftentimes it's in a politician's incentive to uh, subsidize, to cut ribbons so they can say, 
Uh, and Matt's Matt's point he just made, look at all the jobs we created, even if it's an inefficient cost. Um, but that said, um, there is, I think, uh, silver lining. I think people, when they see things like Foxconn or New Mexico with the the Bloom Company that ne- never went anywhere, or things like um, Solyndra, where the federal government subsidized Solyndra and then it's in bankruptcy a year later, um, you know, those sorts of things can motivate political action. And it is certainly a nonpartisan type issue. You get people on the far left, like Akashya Cortez, who you know, who who disfavor um, you know, corporate welfare, and and uh, and then of course people who are fiscal stewards, uh, more on the right, or or the conservatives that uh, understand uh, maybe better than she does the proper role of government and uh, care care uh, more about uh, fiscal order. Um, certainly can be supportive of these things. So I think there's some some. Uh, uh, political possibilities there. Yeah, Matt, some other things might help you out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And a, a couple points on that. You know, one is the uh, this uh, left right, you know, strange bedfellows coalition. This was there at the beginning, you know, in the 19th century as well. So when Colorado, uh, their anti aid provisions are interesting because they were adopted right as they were um, creating their constitution. And they had seen all these other states get into trouble. Uh, with, uh, you know, public subsidies. And they explicitly considered a number of uh, constitutional uh, provisions that would have empowered the legislature to, to really get in the business of, uh, to really regulate uh, businesses. So, for example, they, they thought about empowering the legislature to set railroad rates. Uh, and they rejected those ideas and instead said, we ought to be limiting ourselves. We ought to limit the, the legislature so that we don't aid companies. Um, that's really where, the, where the, the problem is. And then we'll be able to be this, uh, this uh, state that is a good in- investment opportunity that will, where companies can come in and start their businesses without in- either privileges or burdens from the government. And then the other thing I'd point out is this uh, cost, this uh, concentrated benefits and diffused costs, um, I think there is an opportunity maybe to turn that on its head. We normally, whenever we encounter concentrated benefits and diffused costs, we think of it as a problem because it means, oh, the, the concentrated interests that benefit from the government are going to be highly organized and we, the taxpayers who, who bear the burdens, are not well organized. And that's, of course, a lot of that is true. But on the other hand, um, people get really ticked off when they see concentrated benefits, right? So just think about the the uh, you know the the road to nowhere or the bridge to nowhere in Alaska that essentially killed uh, earmarks for uh, the last couple decades. The way that worked is people didn't point out the diffuse costs. They didn't calculate how much it cost 300 million Americans to build that road. They pointed out the concentrated benefits, the fact that the road only benefited you know a couple hundred people on this remote island. Uh, so people get ticked off about that. And so I do think we can maybe use that as a, as a way to uh, attract attention to the issue. Uh, John, Matt, good uh, luck in your attempts to shift the Overton window. Thanks so much, James. And you too. You, uh, Mackinac has been a wonderful partner on this. Thank you, James. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinaw with a C, like the island.